Hey, my name is Fernie, and I want to welcome you to this week's episode of the Mid-City Church Sermon Cast as we finish our series called The Big Conundrum. And for this week, I've invited Caitlin Shess. I finally figured out how to say her last name. Caitlin Shess, who wrote the book, The Liturgy of Politics, which has inspired this sermon series that we've been going through. And so she's got a lot of uh, really fascinating, great things to say. She's brilliant. I know you're going to learn a lot from her, and uh, I'm just so excited to share this interview with her. So get ready, because here we go. here with uh, Caitlin. And Caitlin, I have to admit, um, in the last uh, couple podcasts, I have said your last name three different ways. So <laughs> will you tell us how you pronounce your last name? Shess. Shess. I got it right the last mm-hmm. time. Well, that's good. It's kind of a hard <laughs> yeah. one. It is. <laughs> Don't judge me for the other ways I try to pronounce it. I won't. Um, <laughs> but Caitlin is the author of the Liturgy of Politics, which is the book that we've been using for our uh, sermon cast and our small groups. And uh, I've heard a lot of feedback from all of you. And so we thought we would ask Caitlin to come and join us today um, as we kind of wrap up this series. And I thought, well, better way than to hear from her. So Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about you? Sure. So I was a military kid. I grew up all over the U.S. Um I went to college um, at Liberty University in Virginia and studied history and political science. And then I went straight from there to Dallas Theological Seminary, where I did a Master of Theology in Systematic Theology. And I worked at a church in Dallas in children's ministry and then later in young adult ministry with women in their 20s and 30s. Um, And then now just I'm about a year in to my doctoral program at Duke studying political theology. So I've kind of always had an interest my whole life in those intersecting questions of faith and politics. And now I'm really thankful to be at a place where I get to study that more specifically and formally. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. It seems like you have a, a wide range of education. Like all, this, yeah. all those schools are very different. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, awesome. I think it's a good balance. That was, that was kind of the goal. Yeah. Well, it definitely comes across in the, in your book. Like it's just, it, I uh, I remember talking with somebody and I was like, I really don't know where Caitlin stands because it's so like <laughs> uh, kingdom centered. And I just like love that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about uh, a political party. It's not about any sides. It's like this is kingdom work that we're called to do. Mm-hmm. So I loved it. Oh, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, will you tell us a little bit like why did you write this book? What inspired it? Yeah, so I, like I said earlier, I was a student at Liberty, which when I was graduating in 2015 and 2016 was a really political place. Um, If people know anything about Liberty or about the former president, Jerry Falwell, there were a lot of politicians on campus. There were a lot of uh, political events on campus. There was a lot of political media on campus. And so as I was finishing up my degree, I was really face to face with the legacy of Christian political engagement in the U.S., especially evangelical engagement. Um, and had a lot of questions about how faithful it was and what a better path forward could be. And so when I started seminary, I, I really thought initially moving from a political science and history background into theology, I thought, I'm leaving all that behind me. That was a different life. That's not going to be part of my life now. But the election was still happening, the 2016 election, when I started seminary. And so inevitably, I had conversations with 
fellow students preparing to pastor churches, to lead Christian organizations, to counsel people. And we had conversations not only about the specifics of the political context we were in, but repeatedly we had conversations about how this was forming people spiritually and what it would look like as people who care about people's spiritual condition and also the witness of the church in the world, what it would look like to faithfully respond to that. And so as I started asking those questions and having those conversations with people, I had a kind professor who you know, took my interest seriously and said, there's a whole field actually of people who have thought mm -hmm. about this. There are resources out there that are much older than our tradition and been tested over time. And actually there are Christians who have thought about this before, have faced similar situations or even more difficult situations. And so there's a rich history and resources that we could go to. And so once I finished my degree at Dallas, I thought I have barely scratched the surface of this. I need to keep going and keep learning. Um, and I, I still want to continue to kind of go back to those other traditions and other resources and see um, not only what we can think about in a purely academic or theoretical way, I'm very nerdy and I'm very interested in that, but really a lot of my interest in my heart was, I think churches need resources for addressing this and the good news of a really diverse, you know, 2000 year history of Christian tradition is that we have resources. We have things that are available to us in the past and around the world and from Christians that are very different from us. And so I wanna spend my life trying to learn more about those resources and, and present them in a way that people in the church can actually use. Mm, I love that. Yeah, you know, when we started this series, I told our church that um, I had a pastor when I was like first started preaching who told me preachers should never talk about two things. He said money and politics, um, which was <laughs> oh, funny because no. like, right <laughs> but like right before we started this series we had a series on on money and um mm. i told our church like we're literally talking about the two things that tend to be taboo in a church but it's mm -hmm. so important for us to talk about these things because it's not the first time the church has dealt with um like how do you live in the middle of of the politics that we're living in right now and it's also not going to be the last time so it's important to have these conversations and to wrestle with these kinds of things yeah, yeah. There was one thing you said um, when you talked about like uh, politics can be a spiritual formation, like how we approach politics can, can form us spiritually. I thought that was so powerful. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things I was so struck by when I was in college and then later in seminary was how many conversations I would have with people in the church that were not seemingly about political questions. Like we weren't addressing, it wasn't an election year or we weren't um, talking about who we were gonna vote for or particular policies. But the language of the media they were consuming, of the politicians that they were listening to, of the communities they were, the political communities they were a part of was coming out in Bible studies, in the conversations we had after sermons, in the conversations we had even when we were serving. You know, I had an experience with a church where we were kind of supposed to be doing a service project in a rougher part of our city. And the language people used to describe the conditions of the neighborhood that we were serving in wasn't biblical language about poverty or it wasn't biblical language about justice. It was language that I could tell they had not come up with out of nowhere. It had come from the media they were consuming and the politicians that they revered. And part of my, like I said earlier, part of my drive to do this was realizing that a lot of the pastors that I was talking to or people who were preparing to be pastors saw the political turmoil around them and thought, that's a mess. I don't want to touch it. Like the advice that you were given, right? Like, just don't go there. 
Um, and I think a lot of them had good intentions. Like a lot of them thought that just divides us. It's unnecessary. It has nothing to do with the gospel. And it just, it makes people leave the church. And, and even people my age after the 2016 election ended up saying very similar things. Like, wow, when the church get involved with politics, it's just a mess. We shouldn't touch that. And I was so convicted that whether we addressed it or not, people were being discipled by their political participation. And it was evident in the way they talked and the way they acted. There wasn't this strict separation between how they operated in a voting booth and how they operated in their neighborhood or in their church or when they were serving, even when they were intending to do something faithful and gospel oriented, it still was shaping them. And so wanted to try and encourage pastors who, you know, trust me, the, the situation at the church I was in in Dallas was a difficult situation. I saw firsthand how tricky it is to do this well and how people have very good reason for being afraid of talking about it in church. They're not, you know, being silly. There's good reason for it. And yet the stakes are really high. How our witness in the world is important. The spiritual condition of the people in our churches is important and how we actually like the theological soundness of our churches is important. And so if we ignore the way that politics is spiritually forming people, it's consistently to our detriment. And it's not that then they're just not getting a political theology. They're getting a political theology. It just won't be, from the rich resources of the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things that like really struck me that um, <clears throat> either way, people are going to be formed by it. Yeah. So the church might as well get involved in it because um, I, at least for me, I think any any sort of spiritual formation that doesn't include the church, like it just, it can lead to so many problems. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I'll admit, I was reading through your whole book, loved it. And then I got to the last chapter and I was like, yes, so at Mid City Church, the church that I pastor, uh, our mission is to help bring about the kingdom of God. And like, that's just, we try to instill that in everything and talk about everything. And in your last chapter, like you turn to Revelation, you talk about eschatology, you talk about, um, mm -hmm. I just like, I was like, this is what we try to preach about at Mid City <laughs> every single week. Um, but there was one thing, there was a couple of things that stood out in that chapter that I wanted to ask you about. And the first one, um, let me see, on page 177, you said, we're working on earth with the knowledge that every true work of human flourishing done in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit is a preview of the day of uh, that God's good creation is redeemed. And so like one of the things that we talk about at Mid-City a lot is um, to be aware of glimpses of heaven and to help people get glimpses of heaven. Um, and for me, part of that is like, I know that I don't have the ability to establish heaven. And, and that's mm -hmm. one of the things that you talk about in your book. But like, when it comes to poverty, anytime we help people, that's giving them a glimpse of heaven because in the kingdom of God, there's no room for poverty. And so I just loved what you said there about that, that type of preview. So could you talk a little bit more about that and maybe how we can be more aware to them? Yeah, it's funny. Just this last week, I was um, at a church preaching on Romans 13. And I was talking mm -hmm. to someone beforehand about how I kind of hate Romans 13 <laughs> because <laughs> not because it's not a good path. It's a hard passage. It's a good passage. Mm -hmm. But part of the frustration I have with it is that people hear, oh, a theology of politics, and they go right to Romans 13. And mm -hmm. so much of my concern has been, let's look at the whole council of scripture and think about how the whole redemptive story of scripture informs the way that we think about politics, about human communities, about our obligations publicly in the world. And one of the ways that that's true is that the commission given in Genesis to rule and reign over creation, to use the good gifts God has given to create flourishing communities is the same picture we're given in Revelation of a city where, where we are in redeemed, restored bodies and redeemed relationship with each other and with God. And the image that's given in Revelation is not a church 
not a garden like is in Genesis, but a city, an example, a picture of human development, of human communities, of humans taking those good gifts that they were instructed to in Genesis and building something beautiful with it. And so that's the whole arc of scripture. Then we should expect that the work that we do now that witnesses both to that creational reality and to that eschatological reality, that you know, end reality, will be a glimpse of that both faithfulness to creation and a pointing towards the end. And one of the people who's so informed me on this, um, Richard Mao has a book about the language in Isaiah of the kings bringing the gifts of the nations into the mm. new Jerusalem. And he takes that image and says, this is a picture of just what, what you read and what you described your church teaching of, we have the opportunity to take the good things, not um, not the things that we determine by human standards are good, not the wealth of the nations mm -hmm. in the sense mm -hmm. of all the money that we made or how powerful our military was or any of those things, but the wealth, the real good riches from God's perspective of the nations, the cultural gifts that we bring, the food and dress and all of the things that we've done mm -hmm. that serve the most vulnerable, that witness to the beauty that humans can create, that um, you know bring families together and create moments of joy and restoration and hope those things will be carried into the new Jerusalem. And the, the hope of that and the gift of that, I think, is not only that it dignifies the work that we do now, but as you've said, it in some way kind of chastens some of what we do too, because it says hmm. it will be by God's work. Like, and, and everything we do now is tainted by our own sinfulness, by just the brokenness of the world around us. Even our best efforts are often mm -hmm. corrupted by the world. Um, and so the hope of that is, yes, they're bringing these good gifts. Yes, the things we do now are elevated, but also we are entirely relying upon God to, to redeem those things, to bring to fruition the works that we did very imperfectly on earth, um, to redeem and sanctify and purify those things into the new creation with the hope that at that point, the work that we're doing, because I don't think we'll stop work. I think we'll still be building beautiful things together, yeah. but it won't be under the strain of sin and brokenness and death the way it is mm. now. And so there's a mix there, I think, of mm. elevating what we're doing and also preventing us from making ourselves too important. Mm -hmm. Mm. I love that. Yeah, I think, um, wow, that that vision of like, even when creation's redeemed, we'll keep creating. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's so powerful because like God is a creating God and has yeah. like, we are created to create as well. Um, yeah. And so that idea of like, um, I love that I have this image of like, um, even when everything is redeemed and perfect, we still keep striving for more. And like, um, um, if that's the end goal, like if that's where we're headed, why not begin to do some of that work here in our communities? Yeah. 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 Get some that. practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I also like what you're saying about like, um, one of the things I hear a lot about when it comes to like poverty or hunger, that like that problem is way too big. It's not something that like it, it keeps us from tackling that um, situation sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said about like, it's God who ultimately does the redeeming work. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we help feed people. We help, um, um, what is it? The, the Isaiah scripture, like we do that um, knowing that we're not going to, we are never going to finish all the work, but God is, God will, and God is. Um, so we play a role in that. Yeah. So speaking of that, you mentioned a little bit later about um, there was two quotes you said on page 177. You said, we are not bidding our time on earth waiting to be snatched away to an immaterial eternity. 
And then a little bit later on page 183, you said it is ultimately the power of God that will destroy all forces of oppression and abuse. So uh, it kind of goes in line with what we were talking about. But uh, there's like this dichotomy of, on one hand, God is the one who does the redeeming work. And on the other hand, we have a role to play in that. So how, how do you think that, how does that balance? How do we live in that dichotomy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what the first thing to say, um, I love one of my professors in seminary in a class on political theology. So we're talking about these kinds of questions. Um, he was talking about this same dynamic of there's a period in American history, especially where a lot of theologians talked as if the work that we were doing just didn't matter. Like there was a mm-hmm. period of time where Christians were very involved in social work. And then there was sort of a, a period afterwards where in part because of World War II and our pessimism about changing anything and like all of our hopes being dashed that we could create this perfect society. There were a lot of people who said, let's just focus on the spiritual. Let's save people. There's a famous Moody quote about just, I have a lifeboat and God said, save all you can. And just the world is a sinking ship. There's nothing good for you to do. There's just, just get as many souls in the lifeboat as you can. Um, And there's many more things we could say about why that's theologically wrong. But one of the first things I love this professor said when someone asked him a similar question, he said, well, Jesus told you to. Hmm. Like, Jesus told you to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and liberate the oppressed. Like that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus did. That's the, that's his description in Luke four, the beginning of his ministry of like quoting from Isaiah. This is what, this is what I have been called to do. This is why God sent me. Um, hmm. That's the description that Mary gives in the Magnificat of like, this is who God is. And this is what our response should be. And so I think the first answer to the question is, the people who missed the social implications of the gospel, yes, made a theological mistake, but also it was a question of obedience. Are you doing what Jesus told you to do or not? Um, even if it was true that those efforts were completely in vain, he told you to do it. So you should do it. Um, and the good news, the secondary part of it is that it's not in vain. Um, part of that pessimism in that period was an appropriate pessimism to say, We used to think earlier in our history that by our own efforts, we could create the perfect world. Like there's a period, you know, in the 20s, um, 30s of the 1920s and 30s, where there's just a lot of hope. Like we're doing all this good theological work, describing the social implications of the gospel. We're building hospitals and orphanages and, and schools and caring for people in significant ways. And yet part of the problem there was most of the people doing that work, most of the people writing the theology were pretty wealthy people in a pretty solid social position and kind of had a paternalistic way of thinking about it. They were like, we will, you know, we have all the answers. We will create this perfect society because we know how to do it. Um, And then, you know, we had a really horrific world war and we saw the depths of human depravity and it put a damper on a lot of those aims to create a perfect world. And the really sad, heartbreaking thing to me is that the people at the time who had the theological resources to say, yeah, this was a good reminder to us that we should question some of our own motives. This was a good reminder to us that even when we think we can fix everything, we can't. This is a good reminder to us to be reliant on God, both in in an ultimate sense and in a day-by-day sense in prayer and devotion and just recognizing we can't do it all. Instead of saying, okay, that's now the new posture we have with our social work, many people said, let's abandon that work entirely. Let's just focus on souls. Let's just focus on sharing the gospel. Um, And the good news about that whole story is that, as we've talked about, we have every biblical reason to do both, to hold that tension well, to say we are reliant upon God. And yet that also, that reliance means we are supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to respond with these kinds of actions. We're supposed to be faithful 
to the task God gave from the very beginning. Like that was the task in Genesis. It was the task given to Moses to seek the good of the nations. It was the task given to the early church. Um, it's the work that we'll do in eternity. So we have every good biblical reason to do that work. We also have every good biblical reason to not have the pride to think that we, by our own effort, can just create a perfect world. And that should, um, that really should be not only a reason to kind of chasten our expectations, it should be a really good reason. I mean, looking at the political world around us right now, it should be a good reason to say, if I don't have to create it all, if it, the world is not on my shoulders, it's not up to me, that actually is a really good reason to work faithfully and well without cutting corners or letting the ends justify the means or trampling other people to get whatever I want. I actually have the reason to work faithfully and well, but without relying on these kinds of political strategies that people have to rely on when they think they are the ones that have to solve everything. It actually gives you freedom to work really well and recognize that it's not up, it's not entirely up to you. And so you can be very faithful when given the opportunity to cut corners or trample over other people, you can have the integrity to say no because you know that it's not ultimately you who does it. But we've too often taken that as reason to not be involved instead of as reason yeah. to be more faithfully involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, that's so powerful. Because, yeah, I mean, I think, um, so we've, I've been going through a Bible study with um, on Wednesday nights with our people and um, we've been reading through the prophets, the um, judges, and now we're in the kings. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling them, like, every single week we're talking about how uh, God is telling them, like, just just trust me, rely on me, like, lean mm -hmm. on me. And over and over again, they forget, they remember, and the whole <laughs> thing starts all over again. And it's really, like, I think it's the same story throughout all of Scripture, right? People forget, yeah. then they lean back on God. And even when it comes to politics, when it comes to our careers, when it comes to um, bringing about heaven on earth, the, the idea that um, we do the work we can and we trust God with the rest without hurting anybody, without being in competition with one another. Um, that's what it means to, to, for us to bring about heaven together and not which, who does it better. And I think especially in the church yes. world, like our metrics and who yeah. has the better numbers and who all that kind of stuff. Like it, it gives us freedom when we realize we can't do this on our own. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So, so I've got a couple more questions. Um, this one's this was one I've been uh, excited to talk to you about. So, in page on page one eighty, you start talking a little bit about um, Rome, and in particular, you mention how sometimes when we talk about Rome, there's like there's these two different groups of people, right? There's the people who have the privilege of being uh, Roman citizens and of living in Rome, and then there's also the people who are um, exploited because of that system. Um, and I think in many ways we see a lot of that today. And um, one of the conversations that I tell our people quite a bit is when we look at scriptures, we tend to look at ourselves as the Israelites, as the heroes. Mm -hmm. But in reality, in many ways, we are like Rome, like we're the ones who have the privilege, the power, the um, and people are exploited because of the privilege that we get to live in. And so I was just curious if you could talk to, a little, uh, to us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so important. Um, and that's so good. One of the things I... I spent this last summer researching for my next book on how we read scripture for political purposes. And mm -hmm. one of the things I kept coming across in American history, even specifically was so much, so much of our hermeneutical decisions, like so much of the results, so much of the interpretation at the end of it started with, where do you see yourself in the story? Who, who mm -hmm. are you in this story? 
Um, and so in the Revolutionary War, there's all these sermons where people are like, we are David against Goliath. And like, that's the position that we are in. Or, um, you know, we are, like you said, the beleaguered Israelites and God is going to come through for us in this battle against a foreign people. Or, um, and it was often done for rhetorical effect, right? Like that's a, people are mm-hmm. excited to belong to a story where you are the hero, um, especially if you're the underdog and you're mm-hmm. against the powerful people who are the bad guys. Um, and so on one hand, that's, that's a big part of it is just being conscious of where we see ourselves in scripture, reading in communities with people who are different from us, who can see things in scripture we wouldn't see. I, um, One of the classes I'm taking this semester, we're reading a bunch of, of early church theology on the church in Israel. And I just read something yesterday from a, a theologian in the early church. Um, and every example he gave in this paragraph of bad people in the Bible were women. <laughs> You just it just so happened that every person he gave as an example of a bad guy was a woman. And multiple of the stories he referenced to me, like just on face that his description of that story was not what the story was about. Mm-hmm. And part of it was his perspective on some of the conditions these women were in, the decisions they had to make, the things that were important to them. It just seemed pretty clear he was completely unaware of what their lives mm-hmm. would have been like or how to think about the story with their concerns in mind. And so if you're in a context where you're never reading scripture with people who are not of the same gender or racial background or socioeconomic background as you, you will miss really important things. And you will see yourself in the position of, you know, the early church beleaguered against Rome instead of realizing, actually, this person who just read scripture with me, who saw themselves in that position, it was because they can't feed their family next week. Mm-hmm. Does that suddenly mm-hmm. mean that I'm the like rich person? In this? I don't think of myself as a rich person. Or when we read, as you talked about, you know, preaching with your church, when we read in James about how the early church dealt with, you know, the, the, with the rich and with the poor, and where do we see ourselves in that kind of story? A lot of Americans, especially myself, you know, like I'm a graduate student, a lot of us talk about being poor all the time, right? So we go to scripture and we're like, yeah, tell them, tell them about those wealthy people, James. Um, not recognizing that we have incredible resources to our disposal. Many of us come from families with money, come from places where we have social connections. We have a safety net if things go really wrong. If I'm reading that passage and feel very comforted that I am the person that's, you know, being uplifted here and not the person being criticized, and then I read it with someone who, like I said, can't feed their family next week, that that not only conditions how I read it, hopefully it puts me in a kind of position to read it against myself and then to actually do something to serve my neighbor who I'm reading it with. Um, but we we both misunderstand the place that we're often in in scripture. And then I think that plays into, we also have to think about how we read, we have to think about how we read scripture, and then we have to think about how we read the world. And when we read the world, where do we, we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as the unambiguous good guys who will make good decisions and whose good intentions can be trusted? Um, and who do we see as the bad guys, the unambiguous bad people with bad motives and bad reasons for everything they do? And, um, and, and those two things are related. How we see ourselves in scripture will play out into how we see ourselves in the political situation that we're in. Um, and that will determine whether or not we can, like I said, read it against ourselves. It's one of the things that, that Bonhoeffer talked about. Um, he said this just a few years before Hitler rose to power in Germany was was preaching to a group of young people and said, we aren't good at reading scripture against ourselves. We're used to reading it for us as a comfort to us. And it often is and it often should be. But do we have ears to hear what often happens in scripture, which is that, like you said, the prophet saying to the people, you're in the wrong. You're mistreating the poor and the vulnerable. Do we have the ears to hear where it will confront us? Um, 
is both a question for us to like think about, but also I think truly a question for us to be in the kinds of communities and working through the kinds of spiritual disciplines that can shape us into the people who can hear the word against ourselves. We won't be able to change that just by waking up one day and deciding, no, I'm going to hear it against myself. Like, no, you've been formed in ways that are really hard to undo. And you have to put yourself in the kinds of disciplines and in the kinds of communities that can undo that for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When I think also, um, there's something powerful in, I mean, I think we get scared uh, sometimes when we read scripture to be the the quote unquote bad guys, but there's also something freeing in that, right? I mean, uh, over and over yeah. again, the quote unquote bad guys come to Jesus and there's, they receive freedom when they actually like, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to let go of that stuff. I'm willing to yeah. realize there's another side to this. And that same thing is being offered to us. And so this idea of being able to read scripture through the lens of, oh, maybe, maybe we're the ones that Jesus is or that scripture is speaking against, um, what can that teach us and how can it help us grow mm-hmm. and how can that help us better love our neighbors, which is ultimately, I think all of us really want to do that. Um, we just misinterpret yeah. sometimes how to do it or are unable to hear uh, other perspectives as to how to do it. Yeah. 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 Well, I've got one more question for you. Um, what does all of this, this conversation we've been having, and we kind of, you kind of hinted at it a little bit, but um, this idea of like helping to bring about heaven, what does all of this have to do with politics? And it was mainly, uh, there was this a quote you said, revelation is fundamentally about political resistance against the dominating systems of empire. So I'm just curious, what, what does it all have to do with politics? Yeah, yeah. Well, so first, um, in relationship to that line about revelation, first, it it's a good reminder that fundamentally the message of the gospel, the the message of the coming kingdom of God will confront the political norms and and highly valued ideals of the place that we are in. And if it seems like they're not, then I think we're confused about what they are. Mm -hmm. If it just so happens that our faith fits really well in one political party, or if it just so happens that our faith really supports everything our country does, or if it just happens that our faith really makes us comfortable in every political situation that we are in, then I think we're confused about what it is. And we need to go back and again say, where have I been shaped to believe certain things that are really coming from my political formation? And where does the truth of scripture need to confront that really firmly? And where Mm -hmm. am I afraid of it costing me something? Like the description revelation Mm -hmm. is of a people that have to sacrifice for the things that are important to them. And not just the ways that we often kind of, um, you know, cosplay sacrifice today, (laughs) the ways that we'll be like, oh, I'm going to get really beat up on Twitter for this firm stance that I took, you know, no, are you really sacrificing on behalf of the vulnerable? Like, is your concern for the way that the gospel demands that we treat people? Are you willing to sacrifice on behalf of that? Is that something that's really going to cost you something? And if it's not, you should examine if it's really something that you hold, you know, as valuable. The other part of it is, all of this stuff that we've talked about, about, you know, caring about the social world around us, caring about the vulnerable, caring about the work that we're doing. Um, a lot of times people will say, yes, that's all great, but that do- that's not the same as politics. That's just how I live in my community. That's the work my church does to serve the community. And that all is really wonderful and great. And yet, and, and this is partially, you know, I said, I don't like talking about Romans 13, but I really think this is part of what Romans 13 is getting at, which is to say, you have obligations that you did not choose to people you did not choose and might not like very much. And it is not just your duty as a citizen to meet those obligations, to fulfill them to your, to the people that live around you, to the community that you're in, the state that you're in, the country that you're in. 
It's actually your Christian duty to fulfill those obligations. What Paul is saying in that passage is there's no divide between the spiritual obligations you have to the community. They're different obligations. Your obligations to your church are different, but there's no strict divide between that and your obligations to the broader community that you're a part of. Those are both obligations you fulfill as an act of worship and obedience to God. And so when your neighbor is hurt because of a policy, when there is a systemic reason your neighbor is harmed, you can't say that you love your neighbor and you're completely unwilling to address that systemic problem that is causing them harm. You might not be able to fix it completely. Again, you don't have the weight of the world on your shoulders. You can love them by bringing them food, by caring for them in an in individual, personal way. That is still love. And it's not not love just because you can't do everything. But if you are consistently advocating in the public square for policies that hurt your neighbor, or you're unwilling to do the kinds of things that your neighbor would require you to do to kind of resolve that structural issue, that's not fully love. It's not fully fulfilling that obligation that's described in scripture. Um, and it's going to be complicated saying, oh, love your neighbor doesn't answer all of the political questions about how to do that at all. Um, but it does require us to be really thoughtful about our political witness, the way that we vote, the way we engage in public, where we talk to each other, the kinds of you know events that we go to and the way that we interact with people in them. Um, the gospel should have something to say about all of that. And it shouldn't be separate from this other form of service to people and worship to God. And if it is, it actually lets us justify doing a lot of really bad things. It's like we said before, when we separate those things, it lets us say, well, there's a different set of rules for the political world and the spiritual realm or in the church realm and the state. Um, instead of saying, you know, if, if this is the image, if this is the, the story that we are told from Genesis to Revelation of working faithfully on behalf of the most vulnerable of creating flourishing communities in the world we live in today with the gift that many of us have in most countries in the world to engage in some way in our political system, that engagement should be a part of, of responding to that broad redemptive story. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. You know, one of the things I said in my uh, very first part of this series was uh, when it comes to the, the church and politics, one of the struggles is um, that we have that I think we have to be really careful with is uh, whose understand like whose theology are we trying to establish like whose understanding of heaven, and like I've been wrestling with that a lot because I think at the end of the day, while denominations and churches disagree on a lot of things, I think the core of it is loving our neighbor, right? And yeah. like we should be able to agree on what that looks like that. Uh, our lives don't affect the lives of others, that us having certain rights doesn't mean other people's rights get taken away and so on and so forth. And um, I mean, that's ultimately, at least for me, that's what the, what bringing about heaven for people looks like. How do we make sure that everything we do, we can love people? And I don't think you said this directly, but it kind of sparked this thought in my head of like, politics and getting involved in, in politics is one of the ways that we can love our neighbors. Like yeah. it's one yeah. of the ways that we can make this world better reflect heaven for people. Not the only way, but it's one of them. Right. And right. it's important for us as Christians to get involved in that. Yeah. 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 So I love this book. I know a lot of our people have been uh, buying it lately too, after uh, talking about it for the last couple of weeks. And um, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This is definitely a book that I have two different bookshelves. I have one that's just like, books that I've read. And then I have another one that's books that I like want to reread. And this is definitely <laughs> going to go on my reread shelf. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. You. That's encouraging. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Well, Caitlin, let me ask you one more question. If people want to get a hold of you, is there a way for them to, to connect with you? Yeah. If you go to CaitlinChess.com, you can contact me there. You can find me on social media there. 
Um, you can also, just as a side plug, I have some resources on that website for prayers and spiritual disciplines for an election season. So that includes midterms. Um, so those are just free to download on there. Um, just ways for us to be a little more thoughtful about how we are being spiritually formed by this particular season that we're in. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm gonna have to go check that out. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. I could sit here and ask you questions all day, um, but I know you have stuff to do. So thank you so <laughs> thank much. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Mid-City Church Sermon Cast. If you'd like to dive deeper, visit midcity.church slash sermoncast to find a home sheet that goes along with this message. On the home sheet, you'll find scriptures, questions to wrestle with, and a challenge that goes along with this sermon cast. I want to invite you to support our ministry here at Mid-City Church by giving today. To give, text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to the phone number 225-307-0662. Thanks and see you next week.